0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, March 30th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. How was your weekend? Mine was great. Spent a lot of time. I watched Netflix. All of it. All of Netflix. Well, maybe not all of Netflix. I added in a couple things. Uh, Can't quite remember exactly what I watched. Kind of blending together. I think I saw a show about... um, An Orthodox Jewish tiger who rigged a McDonald's contest. I think that was it. Uh, Tiger McShugana was the name. It was pretty good. I lost the thread of the plot there a little bit. So I will say, another thing I did watch, though, was uh, the Rose Garden press conference that the president gave, President Donald J. Trump, gave on Sunday. And I will say this about the president. He is a lot of things. He contains multitudes. He's a baby, a little bit of a baby, at a time when people are pretty much desperate to be tested, denied tests to find out if they actually have the coronavirus. He got a test, and he's been complaining about it ever since. That's
1: going to make a big difference, too, because that really is a process that's easy, as opposed to the current process, which is not, as I've said, it's not pleasant. And frankly, I took one. It's not the most pleasant thing in the world, I will tell you that. It's not, not, uh... Something I want to do every day, I can tell you that. It's a, you know, it's a little bit of a, uh, it's a little bit of, a, of good doctors in the White House, but it's a test, it's a test, it's a medical test, nothing pleasant about it. So, Donald Trump's a victim,
0: also adult, a little bit of adult. He has an extremely limited vocabulary, and his fallback word tells you everything we need to know about his insecurity. They're strong.
1: Very strong, very powerful, and very strong communication. Strongly follow the guidelines. We will be stronger than ever and it's our military. Stronger than it's ever been. It's a strong advisory that the governor, very strongly, and we're trying to get... I was getting a pretty strong our economy back, strong, just like that way. But, you know, there was a big, strong point made. Plus, in the same press
0: conference yesterday that all of those strong references came from, he took a little bit of time to pick unneeded fights with the media, especially members who had the temerity to, and this was, this was over the line, I think, to accurately quote the president back to himself. I'd also like to ask you about some comments you made on Friday. Uh, you were talking about governors of different states, and you said, I want them to be appreciative. Uh, you also said, if they don't treat you right, but I, I don't that. call. I uh, these are direct, no, direct quotes, a, sir.
1: Excuse me. Ready? 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 Take a look at what I said. I want them to be appreciative of me. Okay, and then you cut it off because it's okay. fake news. You and of your administration. Listen, just, please, absolutely. please let me just finish. It. You just said it again, and you know the answer is a lie. You know I could read you your full comments. Let, sir, let me that just would say, look, your statement and your response and your answer is a lie, because here's the story. You ready? I said I want you to be appreciative of me, and then you go on, and then I go on, and you cut it off. But it says, you because said, I when want you're them not, to be
0: appreciative. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. I want them to be appreciative. We've done a great job. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Mike Pence, the task force. I'm talking about Thank FEMA, you. the Army Corps of Engineers. Thank you. But then you went on to say, if they don't treat you right, I don't call. He's a different type of person. I don't you call. Said, referring to no, the vice president. No, I don't call.
1: No, I right. don't call the governor of well, Washington. Why in now? this time? But of- Mike Pence calls and the head of FEMA calls. I don't stop them.
0: The vice president's reaction was not caught on camera. But presumably, he confirmed, yes, Mr. President, you have not told me to intentionally try to hurt the citizens of the state of Washington during this time of crisis. Your visionary leadership, Mr. President, dictated that we not attempt to intentionally harm people who live in the state that has experienced the second highest COVID-19 fatality numbers. That is a credit to your kindness, sir. It's, I assume what the vice president was saying. So what I'm saying about our president is he has foibles. He sometimes elides best practices, shall we say. But you know what else he did? He actually listened to the experts. He pushed back that target date to remove social distancing to after Easter, even after Greek Orthodox Easter to April 30th. And who knows, maybe if we encourage him and tell him how great he is, he'll move it back again. It's really a lot of fun in this collective effort trying to get the president not to kill us. Now, in doing so and moving the date back, he did engage in a bit of rewriting of his past statements on the matter. You
1: can tell us why. It was just uh, an aspiration. Uh, We actually will be hitting, potentially, this was with uh, our meeting before, uh, on Easter, we probably, think, well, that could be a peak. That could be a peak period. That could be the peak, sadly to say, that could be the peak number of deaths before it starts coming down. No, that was aspirational. We had a, an aspiration of
0: Easter. That talk of a peak is not based on any known science. And Trump also, in a pretty savvy political move, actually embarked on a redefinition of success that would have seemed shocking even a month ago.
1: So you're talking about 22 million deaths, 2.2 million people from this. And so, if we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000, so we have between 100 and 200,000. We all together have done a very good job, but. Heck of a job, Trumpy, but even so, you
0: add up all the presidential pettiness of spirit, the foggery of expression, the petty foggery of everything about this small and vindictive man, you factor it all in, it is still the case that Donald Trump did the right thing. He must be given credit, not necessarily out loud, but just within all of us who've been walking around genuinely worried that Trump will literally embark on actions that could lead to disaster. He avoided the worst decision he could have made. He steered towards the rocks. Oh, oh, yes, he did. He let us all in on the thought process of how tremendous and strong the rocks looked. Strong rocks, strong as a rock. He let us know he was tempted to aim right for the rocks because his enemies and predecessors told him not to. But this one time, he did steer away from the rocks. And thank God he did. It wasn't exactly a strong decision, Merely the avoidance of disaster, but that is a positive state of affairs with the president, Donald J. Trump. On the show today, speaking of the president and presidents and leadership, let's examine and compare the qualities that make for great American leaders today and in the past. The job of president is certainly a tough one. The hardest job in the world, even. That was the title of a cover story in The Atlantic, which is about to become a book by one John Dickerson. You know John from the Political Gab Fest and from CBS. And this presidential leadership is just about his favorite topic. And John's just about my favorite guest to discuss this topic with. We did let this interview run long, you should know, if only to get far away from our current era. Here's John Dickerson. (laughs) President Eisenhower said leadership consists of nothing but taking responsibility, including for everything that goes wrong and giving your subordinates credit for everything that goes well. That... Sentiment seems like a light from a distant star, maybe one that burned out years ago. Now, I got that idea from the man I want to most talk to about leadership, John Dickerson. That was for a Face the Nation commentary that aired a week ago Sunday. He's a panelist for the Political Gab Fest. He works for CBS, 60 Minutes, and he's writing a book on leadership. See? It's the uh, sum total of exactly who you want to talk to. Hey, John, how you doing?
2: Hey, Mike. It's good to be with you.
0: So there is the kind of leadership of how you act in a crisis, but there's also the kind of leadership of preparation. And I wonder if you've been thinking about if we evaluate the former so much more that we tend to overlook how important the latter is.
2: Oh my God, you've been living in my head. Yes, yes. I mean, this is what I've spent so much time working on this book on. So I I think of breaking it down into two simple parts. One is the performance in the moment the you know the speeches they give the resources they rally the blunt force of their command and control abilities in the moment and those are all super very very important but they are only a portion of what being a great leader and particularly in in moments of crisis is all about and i think the biggest things that you can do beforehand are have a management system in place And a set of prioritization skills as a president that basically puts you in the best position possible to be able to handle a crisis. And by the way, to know one of those skills, one of those kind of long-term thinking skills, is that if you're going to be president, you're going to be interrupted by a crisis that comes out of nowhere for which you won't be prepared and where the stakes will be high. So you need to arrange your presidency to accommodate that because— Those situations are the ones that people turn to presidents for. They didn't always, but they will turn to you now in this modern age and you better be ready for it. And you can't just add water to uh, or break glass and and kind of put together a management team at the last minute. You have to have thought through these things beforehand.
0: Right. And you can't put together a management team, you can't develop a skill set you don't have. And so even when presidents, all leaders, have been in a situation where maybe they, to some extent, contribute to the lack of preparedness, to some extent... Most of the time, those leaders at least believe in the concept of preparedness. And I am literally not sure that Donald Trump does. I really do think, and he has made many public declarations about how it always works out and the importance is flexibility in the moment. And it's not so important to read the briefing books and do the work beforehand because you could figure it out in the moment. So when January 22nd, he's in a CNBC interview, he's asked, are there worries about the pandemic? He says, no, not at all. We have it totally under control. It's just one person coming in from China, but we have it under control. It's going to be just fine, reflective of his actual mindset and his skill set.
2: I think that's right. I mean, and as you say, it's not a criticism if the person who does it claims that that's his gift. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he claims his improvisational flexibility is... Sort of his genius. The problem is, if you've been used to dancing through the raindrops, that's fine if there's just one of you. But when you're a president, you've got the whole country hooked up to you. And so you can't get everybody in between those raindrops. Also, I think, you know, the habits of mind that you hone over a lifetime of improvisational thinking and behaving are inconsistent with a public health crisis. So if you have been deceptive repeatedly in your career, You can't be about health numbers. You can't be about information that's going to make people live or die.
0: Yeah, when I think of my ideal leader in a crisis, they give the impression that if they didn't have this job of leadership, they'd like nothing more than to be right there on the front lines. And maybe Lincoln would like to have uh, led an army. Certainly Giuliani, I don't know if he wanted to be on the pile. Maybe he did, but he certainly wanted to be a priest because he went to so many of those funerals. But maybe that's not true. Um, I know FDR was a, Patrician. I'm not sure how much he relied on the idea of giving the impression I would like to be out there, you know, s- tilling the soil with a farmer in Oklahoma. But it does seem part of it is to communicate that you, ha- you are giving everything you can and would love nothing more than to be fighting it, uh, getting your fingers dirty.
2: Yeah, I don't know if Lincoln wanted to be on the front line, but leaders want to take action. And when I talked to Leon Panetta, the former chief of staff, and also obviously secretary of defense and director of national intelligence, he said, you know, you have to kind of give presidents things to do because it's part of their makeup. And Teddy White, in writing about Nixon, said that was part of his identity. So they want to be taking action. And so this is why you also, when you look at a leader who, when Eisenhower said that about taking responsibility, he... He relished it because this is what you do. You want to, you know, it's a put me in coach kind of moment. You want the stakes to be high. You want everybody to turn to you and you want to go perform with excellence in this hard situation. And because you want that, you presumably will have prepared for it, you know, which isn't to say that lots of things won't go wrong, Mm -hmm. but you sort of prepare all your life to be faced with one of these moments and to take and to be a man of action.
0: Maybe a problem with presidential leadership in this moment isn't that our president isn't embodying the best of it. It's maybe our system relies too much on it. I was talking to Andre Picard, who covers health for the Toronto Globe and Mail, and I was asking him, you know, what about Trudeau and what are the provincial leaders looking to the federal government for? And he sidestepped that. He didn't sidestep that. He said, well, that's not really the dynamic here. People listen to health leaders. People don't look to the federal government for leadership. but in America they do and i think you know it's warranted that's how the supply chain works and that's how solutions often flow but maybe this habit isn't working out if we don't have the right leader who could step up to the moment
2: well <clears throat> but i think you've you've touched on something that's important which is we are addicted to the presidency and we look to the president in a way that we shouldn't yeah it, causes two problems. One, it asks him to do things that a president can't do because he doesn't have the power. And yet, because we're addicted to the presidency, we run these campaigns every 4 years in which we stuff more energy into the idea that a president can through the force of his will get things done. So, you mean uh,
0: I, you mean I alone can solve it? Is exactly. That what
2: mean? <laughs> exactly. And it's amazing I went back and looked how many times President uh, Trump said I alone can solve it. I mean, he didn't just do it that once. He, he, he did it on everything multiple times. But so you're right. So we're looking to the wrong place for the wrong stuff. And that's true more broadly, but also particularly in terms of in these crisis moments. So we should be looking to governors. We should be looking to what Eisenhower called our own cheerful giving. And he argued the idea that government would come in and help the people for the federal government was a bad idea because he believed it would atrophy the local kind of sense of charity and community. Now of course, whenever there's a earthquake or tornado or hurricane, we expect the president to either show up physically or to show up, you know, in lots of pictures looking at, at weather maps and things. But there was until basically LBJ, that was not a part of the federal government's role. And nobody thought it was hard hearted. They just thought this is taken care of by other people. So it goes to your point. About looking to presidents too much.
0: Yeah. So I want to just be as fair as I can to the current president. There is a strain of criticism that the failure to act before this pandemic reflects, I've seen headlines, the worst failure of preparedness in the United States. And I have to push back on that for a couple of reasons. One, it is true that there were a lot of signals coming out of Wuhan and then Italy, but Every governor had the ability to act on them. All sorts of different actors knew of the signals and didn't do enough, I think they would all say in retrospect. But also, there are so many threats, a viral pandemic that every president has had his eye on to one extent or another, and everyone admits not enough ventilators have been bought. Well, now that's showing up because it hit. But, you know, the geostorm didn't hit and the near-Earth object didn't hit. And how many of these other 100,000 calamities that could have hit that an expert says, uh, watch out for that. We're not worrying about them and not regarding them as the worst ever or not the worst ever.
2: So, first of all, you're right. There are lots and lots of threats. Although this goes back to your opening point, which was... This is why you need a management structure in place. And you need it for two reasons. One, you need it so that the president's time is focused not on the ephemeral, not on the urgent, but not important, but on the important. Um, And their day could be filled up with merely the urgent, the urgent and important. But you have to carve space for a president to say so that somebody can come in and say, here's the awful thing that might happen with cyber. Here's the awful thing that might happen with a pandemic and go down the list and get presidential guidance and direction, and then have a a White House system in operation that's in such shape that you can delegate out to your agencies. You have the kind of almost disinterestedness In What's going on that's required for true delegation, which is very, very nervous making for presidents, because what happened to Jimmy Carter and others is when you push power out to the agencies, they end up sort of building their own fiefdoms and then it blows back on you. But nevertheless, that's what you have to do because your plate is full with all those emergencies that you talked about. Jim Jones, the national security advisor for Obama, his first one said that he used to make a list before he would go in and brief the president every day of threats around the world, and it was a list of about 10. He said, I can make that list now, and it's about 25. So, busy days. So you need to have a structure in place, and then what you need to do is you need to say, okay, here are the major threats, because basically threats are your job as a president. I mean, yes, you want to get other stuff taken care of, but if you don't get this stuff right, it's going to be a big problem because you do need the federal government to come in and – take control of moments like this. So you need to say, okay, we're, we've are we got a plan, and when this thing hits, we are gonna execute that plan, and we have a system and a battle tempo, and we've all been in our jobs long enough that we know how to handle it. But when you've got guys cycling in and out of agencies all day long, and those agencies' priorities are whipsawed by the whims of the president to go spend time doing other things that may not be high up in the priority list and you've got understaffing and you've got a lack of expertise and an interest in I- expertise in some of these departments, it makes it harder to respond in the moment. And then if you don't respond in the moment as all of your planning has suggested you should, which I think is true in this case, then I think there are areas for criticism there. But I think your general point is is a right one. And I think you can look at all these, like look at nine eleven. I mean, People didn't blame uh, George Bush. Uh, uh, Not everyone blamed George Bush for missing the signals that led to 9-11, except for, for, oddly, Donald Trump, who said he should have kept the country safe. And certainly Bush felt that very profoundly himself. But a lot of people thought, well sure, we knew there was a threat, but who knew this guy bin Laden was going to get planes and fly him into a building? Richard Clark would say, well, I did. But anyway, (laughs) so I think when we walk the cat back on this, I think there is is an argument to make for presidential culpability, but it's not the full argument. I think it's a combination of what you said, plus um, tactical decisions in the moment that were, I think, uh, may turn out not to have been good.
0: Yeah, that seems fair. I was just thinking about leadership, the the political leadership playbook, which dictates if there is a threat on the horizon, take it seriously, not just because it's your job, but it will most likely reflect well on you. If the threat doesn't come to pass, no big deal. If the threat gets bigger, you could talk about how you're taking it seriously. And then if the threat happens, you could look back and say, see all these times I warned us about it. It just – Is what's always done. You never see a a mayor dismissing a snowstorm. You never see a Gulf Coast governor dismissing a hurricane, even when it's miles away and not yet a Category One. Did Donald Trump, through the habits that he falls back on, just miss a very basic, fundamental uh, play from the political playbook that doesn't even help the people, but would have helped him as a politician?
2: I have no idea. I've been scratching my head trying to figure out the same thing. I mean. I think the Charlottesville moment presents a similar opportunity, which is there's no greater slam dunk in American history than when white supremacists and neo-Nazis march in your name, as David Duke quoted the president and said he was fulfilling the president's campaign direction by marching, Um, who engage in that kind of activity. There's no greater slam dunk than as a president to denounce it. And yet he didn't and couldn't. And then when he did sort of fell off the beam and there are a lot of people have theories about that but it was a similar to me slam dunk political opportunity for the president that he that he didn't take this is a similar thing as you say presidents like to take action as we were talking about this president likes to take action some people would like him to take less action and yet in this case he didn't even do the pantomime of action taking that as you say would benefit him and make him look commanding and presidential. And I, I suppose uh, one short answer is just that he did, he thought it would spook the markets, and that the markets are are everything for him as a as a economic indicator of the success of his presidency.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is leadership, the concept of leadership, and. Perhaps listeners could glean that uh, both you and I are not about to give Donald Trump an A-plus on how he's done. So whatever your grade would be and whatever my grade would be, if the the people who he is to lead assess the job he's done and somehow think that it's good enough to give him their vote in a re-election, and let's also bracket this by saying, you know, the future is unknowable and maybe things will either work out or some of his predictions will come true, all all that being said— if he gets re-elected after leading so poorly in the time of crisis that meant so much, is more than the health of you know maybe a million Americans at stake, is the very concept of American leadership at stake if we confer the powers of leader upon him once more?
2: I don't know. I think he's such a singular figure. Um, the only way a leadership could be truly at stake if you buy the idea that he's ruined it would be if you had another person come in and behave the way he has. I think I chop it up a couple of different ways. As a partisan leader, as a Republican leader, he has been extraordinarily effective in doing all the things that leaders are supposed to do, keeping the eye on the long-term prize, which is to say uh, filling the courts with conservative judges, the Supreme Court and the lower courts. He understands and benefited the first time around from keeping those who care about the court happy. Mitch McConnell thinks it's why the President Trump is, was elected because he named those Supreme Court justices during the 16 race that he said he would send to the, to the high court and then followed through on that. So that's keeping his eye on the long-term game and he's done a very good job with that. He's delivered on increased uh, defense spending. He's loosened the rules of engagement in battling well anywhere for the military. He's cut taxes and cut regulations. Those are all things that conservatives and Republicans, and they're not the same thing as you know, have wanted for a long time. And oh, by the way, people who care about all the values issues think, yes, he hasn't lived a life that would match any of those values I have, but his justices will pass laws that are in keeping with that. So he's been a leader of his party and it's wonderful. Now, for those who are in that party, That's not the job of the president. The president is to be the the, the president for everybody. And so uh, that's where his leadership has some challenges. And that is where he thinks more short term. And that's also where he has difficulty with empathy with people who aren't already in his team. So what does that mean for the long term health of leadership or presidential leadership? I think the most likely route is that it tempts a Democratic president to come in and basically use all of the pathways that he's created for Democratic Party ends. And so they will use executive orders and administrative rulemaking and and all that stuff and maybe push the envelope even more in in the same way he has, but just for Democratic ends. Republicans will revolt, do the same thing. And so we'll kind of go down that path rather than having the whole idea of, of leadership crack now congress has a role to play they could assert themselves and pin back the president but of course because we have nationalized elections now in both the house and the senate anything a a republican would do now that might pin back the president actually hurts because hurts them because the president's stature ends up helping them in their races so the idea of congress reasserting itself which would keep leadership in the presidential sphere kind of within traditional bounds, that seems to be less likely based on recent behavior.
0: John Dickerson is the author of The Hardest Job in the World, which is a reference to his post as a panelist on the Slate Political Gab Fest. Actually, it's not. The subtitle is The American Presidency. Though he is a panelist on the Slate Political Gab Fest, a 60 Minutes correspondent and a senior political or the senior political analyst of CBS. Thank you so much, John.
2: Mike, thank you. Sorry about my voice.
0: I loved your voice. It was throaty and uh, inviting. (laughs) (laughs) And now, not a spiel. Well, not a spiel by me, at least, because I've been reading the FDR Fireside Chats. Fireside Chat number two had some really good stuff. First of all, there was the part where in 1933, like today, the government passed stimulus measures. And FDR spoke of, quote, legislation that will greatly ease the mortgage distress among the farmers and the homeowners of the nation by providing for the easing of the burden of debt now bearing so heavily upon millions of our people. And then he mentioned this one other initiative.
1: In addition to all this, the Congress also passed legislation, as you know, authorizing the sale of beer. In such states as divided, That has already resulted in considerable reemployment.
0: The sale of beer is stimulus, though my eighth grade health teacher would surely point out, it's actually also a bit of a sedative. But FDR, like the current president, was desperate to buck up the public spirits. Only how he chose to do so was different. Not with grand promises and dates of recovery plucked out of thin air, but with honesty, often depressing honesty, a message about how tough an economic comeback was going to be. He said, I am not going to indulge in issuing proclamations of overenthusiastic assurance. He said, I am going to be honest. At all times, with the people of the country. I do not want the people of the country to take the foolish course of letting this improvement come back on another speculative wave. He continued
1: I do not want the people to believe that because of unjustified optimism, we can resume the, the ruinous practice of increasing our crop output and our factory output in the hope that a kind providence will find buyers at high prices.
0: FDR added, such a course may bring us immediate and false prosperity, but it will be the kind of prosperity that will lead us into another tailspin. Because Roosevelt wanted citizens to know I am not going to indulge in issuing proclamations of over enthusiastic assurance. We cannot ballyhoo ourselves back to prosperity. I'm going to be honest at all times with the people of the country. And that is how he defined leadership. He did not use his words to fool us or to try to discomfort the percentage of us that his people rooted for, or to try to wish unreality into being. FDR used his words to remind us of what was real over and over. He didn't think of reality as threatening his power. Rather, he knew that admitting the depth of our condition and being honest about it was actually the place from which he derived his power. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi, the Just associate producer, her second fireside chat urged not just the legal sale of beer, but the inclusion of a free beer koozie if you bought a six-pack. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, took a hearing test in second grade, raised the left hand, then it got softer, raised it again, sound, still getting softer, not pleasant. It was not pleasant, but he did it. He's a trooper. The GIST. Just think, in 19 or so years, maybe Andrew Cuomo will be drunk and running around, I don't know, Uruguay, trying to prove that AOC's brother got a lucrative government contract. Could happen. And if it does, the GIST will be there. Oh, Jesus um peru de peru and thanks for listening.